Good evening. All right, thank you for that, one of you. Take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 3. For our Bible study tonight, uh, we pick up and continue in our study through this letter that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. And I want to direct your attention to a handful of verses here, and it'll be some review of what we've talked about, and then we'll narrow it down to our text verses tonight. So Galatians chapter 3, and I want you to go to verse 22, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now what we've been studying through this letter to the Galatians is, is that Paul, the apostle, has been teaching again the Galatian believers that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In other words, there's no other way to be saved other than through faith in Jesus Christ. And there were those, and, and he had established that truth already from the word of God and even from their own personal experience. The reason he was teaching this was because there were those who were called the Judaizers. They were Jews that had come from Jerusalem and they said they were of James and they began teaching in these churches uh, that they were teachers of the law. They began teaching that salvation wasn't just believing in Jesus Christ, but you also had to obey the law of Moses. You had to be circumcised particularly and then obey the law of Moses besides. And so these were Paul's opponents, these Jewish teachers of the law. They came to Galatia with a different gospel and we're preaching that we're saved not by faith alone, but by faith plus keeping the law. And they would argue that the giving of the law changed the terms of salvation and it added this new requirement to it. So it wasn't just faith in Christ. There's this new requirement because the law came along and it changed the, the parameters or the terms of salvation, and now you also have to keep the law. And they would say that it's true, yes, you must believe, because Abraham believed, but the law came later, so now there's this second condition that has to be met as well. And that's where we've been. And so Paul is answering that with this logical argument to these Galatian believers and he's gone about uh, on purpose to demonstrate the inferiority of the law of Moses compared to the promise of God. So, what have we looked at? Well, we looked in verses 15 through 18, 
and where Paul states that the law cannot change the promise of God. Keeping the Old Testament law, that can't change the promise of God. Look in verse 15. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of, of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And what Paul is saying here is that even on human terms, once two parties confirm an agreement, a third party can't come along years later and change that agreement. That's true even on human terms. And in the same way, the law, the law of Moses and the keeping of the law of Moses, which Paul has already shown is impossible to do, that can't change the promise of God by faith. Salvation does not come by believing and doing the works of the law. And Paul's point is simply that the promise of justification through faith made to Abraham is a permanent promise. If a human contract or a human covenant can't be voided or added to after two parties agree on it, then certainly nothing can change or cancel God's covenant and God's promise to Abraham. The second thing that we looked at was that the law then is not greater than the promise. Look in verses 19 and 20. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Wherefore then serveth the law? So the question is, what's the purpose of the law? Well, Paul answers his own question. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, which is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. <clears throat> now, here Paul states that the law is not greater than the promise. And he points out that the law is actually totally inferior to the covenant of promise in two ways. First of all, the law was temporary. Verse 19 said it was added until the seed, which is Christ, should come. And it's obvious then that a temporary law cannot be greater than a permanent covenant that is unconditional. The second was that the law required a mediator in verse 20. And what Paul is saying is that Israel actually received the law of Moses that they're trying to keep. They received it third hand. God gave it to angels. Angels gave it to Moses. And, but when God made his covenant with Abraham... He did it very personally, without a mediator, only himself. And the law was temporary, and the law required a mediator, but the covenant of promise was permanent and no mediator. And the only conclusion you can draw from that is the covenant is not greater, or the, the, the law is not greater than the covenant. It's inferior to the promise of God. The third thing that we looked at is that the law is actually not contrary to the promise, but it works in conjunction with the promise. And that was in verses 21 to 26. He says, Is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. 
For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law, or by doing works for salvation. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should be afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And so Paul is saying the law is not contrary to the promise of God, but rather it cooperates with the promise in fulfilling the purposes of God. And Paul explains exactly why the law was given and how its intent is to reveal the holiness of God and to drive people to Jesus Christ because we can't match the holiness of God. He says in verse 21, the law was not given to provide life. Certainly the law of Moses regulated the lives of the Jewish people, but it did not and could not give them spiritual life. Secondly, he says the law was given, though, to reveal sin. Verse 22, the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. And then he says the law, in verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And here's where we see the way that the law and grace actually cooperate in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus Christ. The law shows the sinner his guilt. This is where God is holy and I'm sinful. And I can never measure up to God's standard because I keep breaking the law of God. So it's meant to show the sinner his guilt, and then grace shows him the forgiveness that he can have in Christ. And the law becomes a mirror where we can see the dirt on our faces. We can see the dirt in our lives. But we can't wash our face with the mirror. The mirror simply shows us that we're dirty, and we've got to go to the grace of God for the cleansing. Okay, do you understand that? And that's, of course, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says the law was given to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. He said in verse 24, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And here Paul uses an illustration that was familiar to all of his readers. That illustration was the child guardian illustration. And if you remember this from the last time we were together... Uh, the idea here is that in Roman and Greek households, well-educated slaves were those who cared for the children. Children, they took them to and from school. They were their guardians. Sometimes they would give out some discipline, but their main responsibility was simply to protect them, to prohibit them, to keep them safe, and to bring them to and from school. And this is what Paul means by a schoolmaster. The schoolmaster was not the school teacher. Their job was to bring them to the teacher. And the schoolmaster is the Greek word pedagos, and it simply means child conductor. And so by using that illustration, Paul is showing what the purpose of the law was. Number one, to conduct us to Jesus Christ. Number two, Paul was also pointing out that the, in these verses that the work of the guardian, which 
was supposed to be the law, the work of the guardian was also preparation for the child's maturity. But once the child came of age, that child guardian was no longer needed. And in the same way, the law was a preparation for the nation of Israel until the coming of the promised seed, which was Christ. And so Paul is showing that the law is inferior to the promise of God by faith. The law performed its purpose. It was done. The Savior has come. The guardian is no longer needed. And that's where we get to our main verses here tonight, in verses 27 to 29. And this fourth thought that we're going to look at that Paul is talking about here is, is this. The law cannot do what the promise could do. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray and then we'll dig into these verses, okay? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us understand these truths tonight and how valuable they are. And Lord, I pray that you'd work in hearts and there may be some who have never been born again, who've never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they've been trying to earn favor with God by being religious or trying to do some good work or trying to be a good person. And Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see that there is no good in them. And Father, that they would be drawn to Jesus Christ. And Father, that you'd work in them according to your will. And Lord, for all of us, mature us in the faith. Lord, help us to realize what we have in Christ if we're truly saved and rejoice in that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, the law cannot do what the promise can do. Now, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, but then he says in verse 25, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law did its job. The law had fulfilled its purpose. Now Christ had come. And with the coming of Jesus Christ... The nation of Israel should have moved out of childhood and into adulthood, if you will. That long period of preparation was to be over because now Christ had come. And there was certainly some glory in the Mosaic law in that time. But there was greater glory in the gracious salvation of God that's found in Jesus Christ And the law was made to reveal sin, and to a certain extent it could control behavior, but the law could never do for the sinner what Jesus Christ could do. And this is what Paul is getting at. First of all, the law could never justify the guilty sinner. He says in verse 26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The law could never make you a child of God. The law could never justify the guilty sinner. How do you become a child of God? Paul says, by faith. That's how you become a child of God. Back in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
What does it mean to be justified? Well, it means to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. How are you declared righteous in the eyes of God? By faith. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that the sinner is justified before the Lord. If you look in verses 27 and 28, we find that the law can never give oneness with God. It can't justify the sinner and it can't give oneness with God. He says in verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. The law can never give oneness with God. In fact, the law separated man from God in showing his absolute holiness and our utter sinfulness. If you remember in the Old Testament when God told the nation of Israel to build the tabernacle and the tabernacle would move as they moved through the wilderness, there was always a fence around the tabernacle as a barrier between man and God. When the temple was built, you remember that there was a veil that was between the holy place and the holy of holies, and only the high priest could go in there once a year with blood. It was a barrier between access between God and man. There was always that barrier there. Man didn't have personal access to God. Through the law, the law could never give him access to God. But it wasn't so with the promise of God by faith. Now notice what he says in verse 27. He says, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ. Now a lot of people misunderstand that statement or they don't necessarily know what that means. A lot of commentators think this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which there's no such thing, by the way. Holy Spirit never baptized anybody. But what this simply means, when Paul is saying as many as of you as have been baptized into Christ, what he's saying is all of you who've believed on Christ, because he just said that in verse 26, you're justified by faith. So all of you who have believed in Christ as the promised Messiah and you've received baptism as a public proof that you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's what baptism is. Water baptism is an outward picture of the inner work of God in the heart. Death to the old man, he's buried, he's dead, he's gone, risen to a new life in Jesus Christ. It's a public testimony that I identify with Christ. So Paul says, all of you who've believed and have been baptized and who've identified with Christ, what have you done? He says, you've put on Christ. You notice that? So all of you that have publicly testified and identified with Christ, what have you done? You've put on Christ. That phrase, put on Christ, refers to a change of garment. The believer has laid aside those dirty garments of sin. They've been removed. Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, etc., etc. And by faith, we've received the righteousness of Christ, the robe of righteousness that is Christ. And when we come to Christ and we put our faith in Christ and we repent of our sin, all the sin is washed away. A robe of righteousness is put onto us. A change of garment has been made and God sees the righteousness of his son. Now, 
In Christ, by faith, we've changed the garments. And when we've changed the garments, it means that we're going to look different, doesn't it? We've changed clothes. We're going to look different. And we are identified then as well as being different. Just to illustrate the difference between what we were in the flesh and the robe of righteousness or putting on Christ. Go to Colossians chapter 3 with me. Stay with me here because I'm going to show you another truth here in just a second that hopefully will tie these thoughts together. Colossians 3 and verse 8, the Bible says, But now ye also put off all these. All right? Here's the old garment. Take this off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, after the image of Christ. So the old man has this. He's got the anger, the wrath, the malice, the blasphemy, the filthy communication, the lying, etc., etc. But the new man looks different. Verse 11, Wherefore, or where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your heart to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. What a difference in description, huh? Between the old man and the new, the old garment, the the deeds of the flesh, and the new garment, which is the righteousness of Christ. What a difference. We are clearly, when we identify with Christ, we are clearly uh, made to be different, and the robe is different. Now, I say that for this reason. Because to the Galatians, what Paul is saying here, this idea of changing garments would have an additional meaning to them. And it would make a lot of sense to them. And, and, and the, the change of the garment, uh, when you put on Christ, Paul is saying it's likened to something else. When the Roman child came of age, he would take off the child's garments and he would put on what was called the toga terilis, or the toga of a man. The toga was a garment worn by men who were citizens of Rome. It was an identifier. It was a status symbol, if you will, that identified who they were. The Roman toga was clearly identifiable by all excuse me, as that status symbol, and it said that I am a citizen of Rome with the full rights and full privileges of an adult. Now, when the boy, who was a child, was ready, either be by age or by his father's declaration, when the boy was ready, the procession to the forum began. 
and this would be a big deal. The procession to the forum would begin. The father would gather his slaves. The father would gather his freemen. The father would gather his clients of his business, if he had that, his relatives, his friends. He would gather them all using all of his influence that he could possibly have to make his son's escort to the forum an imposing force. It was a big deal. And once they got to the forum, publicly, the ceremony of removing the childhood clothing and putting on the man's clothing would take place. And what would happen is then the boy's name would be added to the list of citizens with adult status. And what Paul is saying here is, when you came to Christ by faith, and you were baptized and you identified with Jesus Christ, You put on Christ. You put on a new garment, a new identifier that you have adult status with God. It's an amazing truth that that can grip the heart. Paul's point is that the believer is not a child in need of a schoolmaster anymore. In Christ, we're not just children of God, but we are sons of God. Now, look at verse 26. Again, because, is that where I want to be? I need to get back to Galatians. You should get back there too. We were in Colossians. Galatians 3, verse 26. He says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we could read that word and, and we could interpret it as little kids, little boys. That's not what the word means. It means sons. You're all sons of God, but it carries the weight of an adult son. And so, in other words, Paul is saying that the believer has adult status before God. And so why in the world would you go back into the childhood of the law? Because before Christ came, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ. We ought to, we, the nation of Israel should have matured and should have moved on in maturity into Christ. And so Paul is saying this is something that's so much better with adult status with God. Why would you go back into something so inferior in the childhood of the law? Now look at verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. What a tremendous statement that is. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, to us, that may not mean or be as as significant as it would have been to those people. See, the law that they were trying to live by, the law created differences and distinctions not only between individuals and nations, but also between various kinds of foods and animals, all kinds of distinctions. Well, Jesus Christ came along, not to divide, but to unite. And this thought that in Christ we are all one must have been glorious news for those Galatian believers, because in their society, slaves, they were considered nothing more than a piece of property. Women, they were kept confined and disrespected. The Gentiles, 
They were constantly sneered at as less than by the Jews, not even counted as people. The Pharisee would pray each morning, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank thee, God, that I am a man and not a woman. I thank thee, God, that I am a free man and not a slave. And they used those distinctions as self-promoters. I'm better than others. And yet, all of these, quote, classes or distinctions are removed in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that ethnicities or political status or gender is changed when someone gets saved, but it does mean that these things are of no value. They do not become a handicap to us when it comes to our spiritual relationship with God. In Christ, we're all the same. We're all one. The law perpetuated distinctions, but God in his grace has declared all men on the same level so that he could have mercy upon all men. Romans 11.32, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that's Jew and Gentile, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You see the statement that Paul is making? That God has concluded everybody in unbelief, both Jew and Gentile, so that he could save everyone. And then Paul's like, oh man, the depth of the riches of the, of the wisdom and the goodness of God, how can it be? Ephesians 2, in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, that's the Gentiles, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one, both Jew and Gentile one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby." The law could never bring oneness with the Lord. And then in verse 29 of our text, the law could never make us heirs of God. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now the Bible says that God made the promise to Abraham's seed, singular, Look in chapter 3 and verse 16. <clears throat> now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So God made the promise to Abraham's seed, singular. That seed is Jesus Christ. And so the point that he's making is that if you, as a believer, are in Christ by faith, then you too are Abraham's seed, spiritually speaking. And that means that you're an heir of the spiritual blessings that God promised to Abraham. And it's all contained in Christ. It doesn't mean that the material or the national blessings promised to Abraham or to Israel are all set aside. God still has a purpose 
that he's going to fulfill in them. But what it does mean is that the saint of God today is enriched spiritually because of the promise that God made to Abraham way back then. You and I are benefactors of that. And so it helps us to understand that what we have in Jesus Christ. And this section of Galatians is valuable to us when we read the Old Testament. It shows us that the spiritual lessons of the Old Testament weren't just for the Jews, but they have applications to Christians today. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. He's talking about the history of the nation of Israel. Those things happen to them for our examples. These things are written for our admonition. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And what I'm saying here is, as we begin to wrap this up is our Christian life, it ought to take on new meaning and some new wonder and some new admiration when we realize all that we actually have in Jesus Christ. We are heirs of God. And it's all by grace and not the law. You need to understand this. You're an adult son in God's family. You're an heir of God. Are you drawing upon your inheritance in Christ? Now, the next section, Paul gets into our adoption and what that means. So he says you're an heir of God. You're, you're an heir of Jesus Christ. You, you should have moved from the childhood into adulthood. You're a, a, a an adult son in God's family. And so Paul gets into the adoption and what that means. But we're going to find that the angle Paul takes about this is that, hey, you're a son of God. You're an heir of God in Christ. You are an adult with an inheritance. And so now it's time to grow up in your Christian life. That's the direction that Paul's going to go. And this is where it can start to get a little more convicting to you and me. We play church and we play Christian. But God says, you're an heir of God. You're in a, you have adult status in my family. It's time for you to grow up and be like Christ. And so that's the direction Paul's going to go. And he's going to come at it from this legalistic mentality. That's what these Jews had and these Judaizers had. They had a legalistic mentality about them. And one of the tragedies of a legalistic mentality is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads the believer back into childhood in their Christian experience. And you know the application that we're going to find is this, self-righteous and judgmental Christians, though they appear to be spiritual and mature, they're actually not. They're actually only immature Christians. And God says it's time to grow up. 
And so we're going to cover those things when we get into chapter 4. But praise the Lord for your salvation. Amen? What do you have in Christ? You have, you're an heir of God, an adult son. And you've, the old man is gone and you've put on the new, the new garment, which is Christ. Let's live like it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use your word and to challenge and encourage and to strengthen and to correct all the things that we need. Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us. And Lord, that these truths that can be so deep and rich, Lord, that they would actually find lodging in the heart. And Father, I'm thankful for the plan of salvation that is by grace through faith in Christ. And Lord, that this not of me and the keeping of my salvation is not up to me. And Lord, the, the, my relationship or standing with you is not based on my performance, but it's based on your promise. And Lord, I pray that you would grow us up into Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.